Flying in an actual display is a bit like playing an important cup match or something like that. It's not the standard league game. The standard league game are all the practices you do, basically, and rehearsal. The big day, of course, is the day of the display, and Farnborough in particular, because it's seven days on the trot. This is a podcast for the infinitely curious, where we share stories, invite others to share stories, and sometimes just talk for the hell of it. So, take a few minutes out of your busy day, sit back and join our host, Steve Windus, batting the breeze. I was born on the 14th of July, 1932, in the village of Chandler's Ford, as it was in those days, going to a preparatory school there called Sherman House for five years, and then going to Peter Simmons School in Winchester, which in those days was a direct grammar-type school, where I stayed from 1941 to 1949. This is Paddy Hine. Well, actually, Sir Patrick Hine, former Air Chief Marshal in the RAF, and among many other things, destined to take part in one of the world's greatest ever aerobatic feats. But more of that later. While school wasn't gripping Paddy's attention perhaps as much as it might, something else definitely was. I was besotted with golf, having taken that up in 1945, and having become, by this time, early 1949, quite good, with a three handicap, having become a schoolboy international, and I was determined to become a professional. Paddy had written to Cromehurst Golf Club near Croydon, applying to become their club professional. Cromehurst politely declined in writing, but Paddy's father had mistakenly opened the letter. And he said, what's all this about? And I said, well, Dad, to be absolutely honest with you, I've lost all interest in my school education. I was about to take A-levels, incidentally, or what in those days were called higher school certificate, and uh, I want to become a professional golfer. So he went off to see the headmaster, and the headmaster said, Mr. Hine, I think you have to accept that this is a genuine obsession with Paddy. He's not working hard enough to pass his higher school cert. The best thing you can do is to let him leave school now let him play golf all through the summer, see how good he gets, and then you can take a more measured decision in the autumn. And that's exactly what Paddy did. I left school in March 1949. I played golf all through that year. I happened to win the Caris Trophy, which was the British Schoolboys Stroke Play Championship. I won the Hampshire County Championship at Stoneham Golf Club near Southampton. And later in the year, I won the Brabazon Trophy, which is also at Stoneham. The age of 17 a quarter, I think the youngest to ever win it. And that was um, a victory by eight shots. In 1947, Clement Attlee's government had persuaded Parliament to pass the National Service Act, a post-war gesture to ensure Britain could maintain its ongoing military commitments. 
It came into force in 1949. That meant that the young Patrick Hine would soon be called up for his national service. National service is often called conscription in other nations. And some people, some nations have it even today. Either a year or 18 months, very rarely as much as two years, which we had in those days. I think in many ways it did a lot of good because it brought people in like myself, young, ill-disciplined, and something perhaps a bit selfish, and turned them into reasonable citizens. Taught them self-confidence, self-belief, self reliance, how to become a member of a team and so forth, think of other people, as well as learning all the martial arts. And sure enough, national service intervened in Paddy's professional golfing aspirations. The RAF was beckoning. So in October 1950... Two months or so after the Korean War had started, they were training some National Service people to be pilots. So I stuck my hand up and went through the selection process down at Romford and um, started pilot training in the March 1951 at a place called Booker near High Wycombe, flying chipmunk aircraft. I went straight through after chipmunks on Harvard's and got my wings on the 6th of February, 1952, which, if you remember, was the day that King George VI died. And you may also recall, six years later, the day that Manchester United had their crash at Munich. And I've been a Manchester United supporter since 1948, ten years before that happened, and I'm still to this day. Yes, what a special date 6th of Feb turned out to be. Why did you choose the RAF? Well, initially, I opted for the Navy, but was told very politely that very few people were taken into the Navy for national service. So the RAF was the lesser of two evils. And I also, at the back of my mind, had this time when I remembered the combats of 1940, the Battle of Britain, because living in Charles Ford in 1940, the Battle of Britain was fought over the Southampton area. And uh, I'd seen many of these aerial combats over my head and those bright blue skies with contrails, the odd aircraft being shot down with a plume of smoke and so forth. The Spitfire and the Hurricane became the legends of that particular battle. And at the back of my mind, I thought, well, if I could learn to fly during my two years in the RAF, this I would much enjoy. So that's what I ought to do. And the RAF? Was it what you were expecting when you first started? I don't suppose I didn't know what to expect, really. The initial training, which was three months of studying various subjects, a lot of drill, a lot of physical training, a lot of parades, kit inspections, all those sort of things, uh, I found a little bit irksome. But I think by the end of the three months, I got the message. I'd become much more disciplined. And of course, as soon as I started the flying training, then that was the great interest. And um, certainly before the end of my national service, I had been bitten by the flying bug in the same way that earlier I'd been bitten by the golfing bug. And so I applied for a short service commission, 
which in those days was eight years. I got that, and then the following year, my squadron commander put me up for what was called a permanent commission, which I also got that summer. And so I two years turned in to 41. Now, one of your early flying experiences was with the Gloucester Meteor. Tell me a little bit about that. Right, well, the Gloucester Meteor was a twin-engine jet aircraft, one of the first two jet aircraft in service with the RAF, the Meteor and the Vampire. And the earliest marks of Meteor were brought out in about 1944, 45, and actually used to um, chase doodlebugs. The doodlebugs, or V-1 flying bombs, were first launched by Hitler's Wehrmacht in June 1944, one week after the Allies successfully landed in France, primarily targeting London as a terror weapon, which they certainly proved to be. The Meteor was one of the early lines of defence against the doodlebug, and would either shoot them down, or come alongside and literally tip their wings so they'd crash into the sea. Well, it was the only thing that could catch them, you see. At that particular time, the, the Spitfire, the Aegis Marcus Spitfire, was just not fast enough. Top speed of a meteor was around 600 miles an hour, so it was pretty fast. You could do up to Mark 0.83, so 0.83, the speed of sound, that sort of thing. So to tip the wing of a doodlebug, You'd have to first find it. Yes. Catch it, come alongside. Exactly that. You would um, be guided onto it by radar until you were visual with it. And then you came up from behind on one side. And by flying your aircraft underneath the wing of it, you didn't have to touch it. It didn't matter if you did, provided you didn't touch it too hard. You could get a pressure of air, and that would tilt it out of its guidance system. So you can imagine tilting the wing until you've gone through 30 degrees. The nose would then begin to drop of the doodlebug and it would be down. Because they were actually fairly rudimentary, weren't they? Yeah, they were rudimentary. It required some pretty accurate flying and, and a bit of care. But I would expect having an operational pilot to be able to do that. After notching up over 2,000 hours of flying meteors during a tour at Tangmere or Number 1 Squadron, Paddy was transferred. I became a flying instructor at the Central Flying School, and I was a member of the Central Flying School formation aerobatic team. They were called the Pelicans. If you were instructing as I was at a flying training school, then twice a year you were posted back to your original squadron to do some operational refresher training. And by the time I went back to one squadron, they'd converted to the Hunter. So I was lucky in being converted to the Hunter on number one squadron, and also lucky in that Central Flying School had three or four Hunters for people to get experience of uh, swept wing, single engine jet flying, supersonic aircraft. First one the RAF had, the Hunter. They describe it as transonic. Well, it would be trans transonic level. It was only supersonic in a dive. So if you turn your winged over, as we call it, and pointed the nose down within, oh, 10, 15 seconds, you could be supersonic. 
In 1957, Treble One Squadron had become the RAF's formation aerobatics team, soon to be named the legendary Black Arrows. Paddy knew about it, and he wanted to be in it. And I phoned up squadron leader Roger Topp, who was the leader of the team, and I said, could I come and have an interview with you? Because at some stage, rather, I'd very much like to join the team. So he said, yes, fly over to Biggin Hill, which I did in a meteor. Uh, we had a good chat, and he said, I'd love to have you, but he said, I haven't got a slot at the moment. So he said, uh, when I do, I'll get in touch. Well, I suppose it must have been about a month later, one of the squadron had to eject after a very bad landing and injured his back badly, so there was a slot. And I got the telephone call from Roger Top to say, could you come and join us? I said, I hope so. And I persuaded my boss uh, at the Central Flying School to release me early from my tour there so I could go and join the team at Northfield. So Treble One Squadron was purely an acrobatic team or was it operational as well? Well, it was both. It was an operational fighter squadron. And in those days, the RAF team was always provided by one of the frontline squadrons in fighter command. So what tended to happen during the four years, 1957 to 1960, was that they would focus primarily on formation aerobatics from about March through to October. And then during the winter, everybody would revert to operational training. And what came before the Black Arrows? The RAF had always had aerobatic teams going right back to the hands and air displays of the 1920s. Immediately before Treble One took over this role, as I say, in 1957, 43 Squadron at Lucas in Scotland, the Fighting Cox, they had provided the RAF team, but always with four aircraft, as far as I know. And the boss on Treble One, Roger Top, he introduced the fifth aircraft very early on. And the advantage of a five-man team is that you can do many more shapes than you can with just a four-man team. Once you've gone from four to five planes, why stop there? And it wasn't too long after that. Around the middle of 1957, when I'd only been on the squadron for about two months, that the boss decided we would do a Diamond 9 aircraft display at Farnborough that year and for the Battle of Britain at home days. So I was, as a new boy, the number six in that team at Farnborough in 1957. That is the aircraft in the middle of the Diamond. The Diamond 9 was always the basic formation of the team thereafter, and we would do different shapes with the 9, and several aircraft would break away, say four aircraft would break away, and we'd come back down to the normal 5. Or we'd come down to 7 and then to the 5 during the course of the display. At this point, the 9 aircraft team didn't actually have a name, but that was about to change. Paris Air Show that year, the French press... French media dubbed us Les Flèches Noires, the Black Arrows, and that's where the name came from and stuck. Because the aircraft was painted all black, it was not in the normal camouflage colouring at all. Black and gold were the squadron colours anyway, so it was adopting one of those. And against um, a blue sky, the black stood out very starkly. It was a good colour. And what did a typical week look like during the aerobatic season? 
you started to work up for the new season in March and April, and there were a lot of displays, I suppose, between April and the first part of October. We'd give about 80 to 85 displays, about half of them, perhaps more, in this country, and the remainder throughout Europe. So at the weekend, we'd often fly out to, it could be Germany, it could be Norway, it could be Spain or Italy, and uh, we would spend the weekend out giving our displays. And then having given the display, we were usually entertained to a very good dinner, whatever, whatever it was. And then on the Monday, we would fly back, probably a bit the worse for wear, but with some duty-free stuff in the aircraft somewhere, and uh, go back home, resume normal family life, and uh, get on with our training for the next weekend's displays. Do you remember, perhaps when you were younger, trying to learn to juggle? You'd start by throwing two balls in the air from one hand to the other, and if you hadn't lost interest by then, you might have added a third, or fourth, or even a fifth. Well, it's a bit like that when you're learning to fly in formation. You would start up by being number two in a pair. So you'd have somebody leading the pair who was an experienced formation aerobatic pilot. The number two, the trainee, would sit on his wing, and uh, you'd do steeper climbs, wing-overs to the left or wing-overs to the right, and gradually work up into doing a loop. And then you'd practice a number of loops, and then you'd do a barrel roll. And it was literally like flying around a barrel. And so you'd work the guy up in several sorties, just flying number two. And then he would become one of three, and eventually one of four. So you're gradually working up and giving him experience, and you're then following the whole sequence that the boss would pursue. So you have a sequence of, say, 12 minutes, 15 minutes at the outside, of presenting loops, barrel rolls, changing formation in front of the crowd, a display sequence, it was called. So thinking about, for instance, the standard Diamond 9 formation... What were the particular challenges of flying in a formation like that? Every single pilot going through training, fighter pilot, is going to be taught how to fly in formation. So that's a given long before any fighter pilot becomes operational on a frontline squadron. So the basics are all there. It's retaining formation in manoeuvres, quite sharp manoeuvres, and Maneuvers like loops or rolls and this sort of thing. That is the big difference. And there's a slight psychological hurdle there for someone to overcome. But flying formation, you need small movements, both on the throttle to keep fore and aft position and both on the control column to maintain the same plane and so forth. It's smooth, just smooth. And the best formation apparatus are the smoothest ones who do that, not making too many small adjustments. And what about from the aeronautical engineering aspect in terms of flying close together with airflow and so on? If you get too close, you're disturbing the flow pattern around the wingtip or trailing edge of the other person's wing. We flew overlapped like that by about three feet between wingtips. But we did that by being stepped down very slightly about three feet, three, four feet below the other 
chap you're from waiting on. Whenever we, we were flying in the five, that was the only time we did that. That was a very close formation. If we were flying in a nine, we were tips brushing, just clear of tips brushing. But you're quite right, if you're flying very close, there is a disturbance between the two wings. And the only way you can um, compensate for that is by saying dropping down, what we call plane low. And when you say three feet, you literally mean three feet. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds very little, but bear in mind that it doesn't matter whether you're flying at 150 knots or 450 knots. Speed is relative. You and the aircraft you're formating on are moving at precisely the same speed. So as speed changes, your formation flying doesn't change at all. In many ways, the faster the speed, the better it is, because the more sensitive the controls are, and so forth. And presumably, depending on where you sit in the formation, your job can look quite different? The larger the formation, those flying on the outside of it, particularly when you're doing rolling plane manoeuvres, they have to have major throttle changes. If you can imagine pulling up straight and level, and then you begin to do your barrel roll to the left, the chap on the outside is a bigger roll than the boss, as you can see going round the outside of the barrel as opposed to the centre of it. So he's having to make throttle adjustments. Initially, during the first part, quite a lot of throttle on to maintain station. And then as you're coming out of the roll, quite a lot of throttle off. So the core of the formation needs to be very steady, which gives the people on the outside, the extremities of the formation, a much easier ride. You might say, oh, we should put our, our very best pilots on the outside of the formation in that case. No, you put your most experienced smooth pilots in the core of the formation, because that makes life much easier for those out on the extremities. Now, the leader, Roger Top, was ambitious for his team, and for him, the Diamond Nine was just the starting point of that ambition. The 1958 Farnborough Air Show was looming. The Pakistani Air Force display team had attempted, not totally successfully, a 16-plane loop in their Sabre aircraft. So Roger Top and his hunters would have to go further. we had to do more than 16. 16 was a good number, incidentally, because you have a bigger diamond. You add another seven, you have a diamond shape again. And he fastened on to the idea of having 20. And the idea was that you had a frontage of five aircraft in arrow, and in behind, there were three aircraft in each stem in line astern, which made the 20. We didn't have 20 pilots on the squadron who were formation aerobatic capable. So he had to convince the commander-in-chief of fighter command that we needed more aircraft, uh, we needed another 10 aircraft, and we needed another 10 pilots. So in came these extra aircraft, and in came the extra pilots, who we had to work up slowly into this shape of 20 that I described. So I've got them all experienced. We went up and we did several rehearsals, and it worked fine, probably about two times out of three. But the third occasion, the people on the outside at the back, because they were so far away from the boss and doing a bigger looping maneuver, were being stretched. In other words, of dropping back slightly and not maintaining formation. 
two times out of three isn't good enough for the world's leading formation team, so a solution was needed, and a solution was found. Which was increasing the frontage from five to seven and putting only two aircraft in each of the stems, which gave you 21, but you could put a fourth aircraft in the boss's stem because he's, you know, he's the smoothest one of the lot, if you like. So no problem doing that. So that's how we got the basic 22. And we went up the next day and we tried it and it worked a dream. We tried it several times, it worked. So that's how we settled on the 22. But it was interesting going from the 20 to the 22. The 22 was feasible, whereas the 20 wasn't. At last, it's the first day of the Farnborough Air Show 1958 and the day of the public world record loop attempt by 22 Hawker Hunters, the Black Arrows. The morning had gone to plan, and it was now time to head out to the tarmac. And then you all walk out together, walk round the aircraft, do the pre-flight inspection, and then climb into the cockpit, strap in, parachute, harness, everything else, helmet on, plug in. And um, the boss tells you when you're going to start up, you know exactly when our team must be up and listening to him. You all start up at the same time. You check in right through the formation to make sure everybody is serviceable before you move off the chocks. And um, then if everything's going well, off you go. Twenty-two aircraft plus two airborne spares, which we had in case somebody went US hadn't got airborne. And off they went. Four at a time, and after orbiting RAF Odium while the remaining planes joined the formation, they left the airfield behind in the direction of Farnborough. About three miles out, they enter a shallow dive to reach the correct height for the approach, the rearmost aircraft only 50 feet off the ground. So you'll start your run-in, normally from the west, down the main runway at Farnborough and into your sequence. At the end, there's a double 22 loop. A double 22 loop. The double 22 loop. Paddy relayed the event in typical understated manner, business as usual. But it wasn't business as usual. The world was witnessing an aerobatic manoeuvre that had never been seen before on such a scale. Roger Topp later talked about that moment, zooming upwards as airspeed fell. Full concentration. Consistent pressure on the throttle to ensure a clean and even arc was drawn. He recalls the moment when 22 Hawker Hunters stood vertically on their tails. What a sight that must have been. Then the top of the loop, the slowest point of the manoeuvre, the moment with the least throttle control. Steady now, steady. Each plane in turn tops the hill and they're hurtling back down towards the runway. And as they pass the euphoric crowd... Straight into the second loop. So it was like looking at a pair of glasses, if you like, from their point of view. 
before you disappear right. Six aircraft peeled off at that stage, coming down from 22 to 16. The boss would do a wing over, and the high wing would come back, do the barrel roll with 16 aircraft, shed another seven, come into the Diamond Nine, do several manoeuvres in the Diamond Nine, and the final few manoeuvres with a five. And that was it. A glorious world record 22-plane loop by the Black Arrows. A record which still holds to this day, and certainly looks to have little chance of being beaten anytime soon. We were very pleased with them. The sequence had gone well and it was over, we were back on the ground and so forth. A great feeling when you know you've done the job well, as with anything in life. And then back on the ground, debrief, go off to the bar, have a pint and enjoy the day. Paddy remained with the team the following year and after one more season in 1960, Treble One Squadron handed over the baton of being the RAF's flagship aerobatic display team to 92 Squadron and the Blue Diamonds. And their successors, the Red Arrows, are still thrilling the crowds to this day, though with a few less planes. I think people always love air displays, and to see a team like the Red Arrows perform, wherever it is, Bournemouth Festival, or Farnborough, or somewhere else around the world, is always exciting, and there'll always be people. How else do the general public see anything that the Royal Air Force does? Very, very few are exposed to how they do it, day-to-day looking after our defence interests. For Paddy, the end of the Black Arrows marked just the beginning of the rest of his extraordinary RAF career. He moved on to become squadron leader in 92 Squadron and continued a meteoric rise to the RAF's top post, Air Chief Marshal, a role that led to the responsibility as Joint Commander of the British Forces during the Gulf War in 1990. In 1991, Paddy retired from the RAF, spent some time as military advisor to British Aerospace, but there was still time for one more particular honour. By 1995, an ex-RA friend of mine had put me up for membership to the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St Andrews, and it was 15 years after I joined. Out of the blue came this letter in mid-December. Dear Paddy, the past captains of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club have met to decide who should be our captain next year, and we'd be very honoured if you'd agree to become the captain. I said to Jill, this is a wind-up. You know, one of my friends having a real go at wind-up. Anyway, I turned it over, and it was signed off by a chap called John Uzielli, who I knew very well. So I made a few inquiries, and yes, it was a bona fide letter. So you became captain of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club for that year, 2010-11, I believe. Just clarify for me the role of the R&A. The two organisations, the USGA and the, the R&A, they run golf worldwide and they're very close together. So in representing the R&A, yes, I was representing the club, but primarily the R&A in its position of being one of those who runs the game of golf throughout the world. 
And did your golf manage to improve through that period? Well, I was at my best at 18. I spent the last 75 odd years getting slowly worse and now getting much worse quickly. And with your Air Chief Marshal hat on, when you look at the RAF today versus, say, the 1990s RAF when you stepped down, what do you see? I see a service which is about one-third the size, which in terms of facing any major threat to our security in Europe is far too small. I mean, we have, I think, something like seven or eight frontline fighter credit attack squadrons. Whereas when I retired in 1991, we had 28. So they're highly professional. What they do, they do very well, as far as I can see. But it's a veneer. It's a shop window air force. It is not one designed for serious fighting. But that's not just true of the RAF. It's true of all our armed forces, I'm afraid. Politicians who have to get themselves re-elected every five years are not keen to spend any more on defence than they absolutely need. And incidentally, whereas threats can change overnight, serious military capability cannot. To reconstitute for the Air Force, for example, to where we really need to be would take you 10, 15 years. Nowadays, it takes up to seven years to train a frontline fighter pilot. By comparison, I was on a frontline squadron within 19 months of having joined the RAF. And finally, just returning to the Black Arrows, where does that achievement rank in terms of your career accomplishments? I think you have to say it was one of the highlights in terms of my flying career. It stands out as something exceptional in terms of the people that I was flying with, the challenges we were posed and how we met them, the rapport between the pilots and the ground crew, the fact that we had a very active, close social life as a team. It's like any good team. You need an esprit de corps, and we had that in spades. So I will always look back on those three years with great affection and with most fond memories, which will stay with me to my dying day. If you've enjoyed batting the breeze with us, please share the podcast with a friend and perhaps leave a review to help new listeners find our show. Check out show notes and other great stories at battingthebreeze.com. By the way, if you have stories that you think would be informative, amusing or thought-provoking, emotionally stirring, or perhaps would deliver a message of hope or inspiration, then why not head over to battingthebreeze.com and let us know. Thank you for listening.